You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. The English cricket season is nearly upon us. We're only two weeks away from the start of this year's county championship, but we've got plenty of international cricket to talk about before then. I'm Yaz Rana and with me today is the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and the editor-in-chief of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly magazine, Phil Walker. There's a new magazine out this week. England's monster tour of Asia is still going on. Since we last recorded a pod, it's not gone great for England. They lost the last two T20Is and the first ODI against India. Let's go in reverse chronological order. England lost the first game of the ODI series by 66 runs. It was a pretty good game. England were 135 for none, chasing 317 before collapsing to 251 all out. Um, an emotional Kunal Pandya hit the fastest ODI half-century by debutant beating... Roland Butcher's record, um, which which lasted a very long time. And another debutant, Prasid Krishna, took a forfer as well. Um, Joe, how did England mess that up? It looked like England were going to cruise home. Uh, well, they messed it up by playing the way they play, as Owen Morgan was uh, keen to emphasise at the end. And it is hard to criticise them for that, given it's, it's won them a World Cup. But you do think there's perhaps a little bit of room for nuance within that, that when you're so far ahead of the rate that you can tone it down slightly. I think Morgan said he'd, he'd much rather lose by 60 runs playing like that than, than 20 runs and playing differently. And you can see where the logic is. It's, it's so fundamental to the way that team plays and the success they've had that he doesn't want to change it. Um, so you can you can understand to extent. I think obviously Joe Root at three is a, is a huge loss. And the fact that Stokes at three, which should be quite a good option, Stokes just isn't in any kind of form. So that really did weaken the side. And then that kind of middle order of Billings mowing I mean they batted down to 10 but it, it just didn't you didn't really feel like they had the players in form to grab the game by the scruff of the neck and, and take them over the line um, and I think we also saw in the bowling department that when Joffre Archer isn't there that, that he, he kind of papers over a lot of the cracks in that England bowling lineup um, any side in the world would hugely miss him um, 
but I think we saw that very clearly, particularly at the death yesterday. England were so good and still are so good at ODI cricket, you kind of forget how many runs 320 is. So even after Bairstow and Roy have a start like that, there is still 200 runs to go. And um, Root so often would get runnable 70s, runnable 100s, whatever, and people kind of go, well, after that start, wasn't too difficult. But actually, it's quite difficult. And I, I, I kind of think that a lot of people leapt on Owen Morgan's comments after the game. But I think India deserve a lot of credit because Stokes didn't get out trying to blast it. He was one off nine, one off ten or whatever. Um, India actually bowled pretty well in the middle. Yeah, they did. And they pulled it back uh, beautifully, really. Um, in the cold light of day, if you're 130 for naught off, off from about five minutes of an innings, then, you know, it's one hell of an achievement to lose to lose by 60-odd, which, which is a decent defeat. You know, they, this is not an arsenip one way or the other. Uh, Stokes at three... Is a, is a tricky one because Stokes is not an especially natural manoeuvrer in the early part of his of an innings. Um, Stokes is obviously, you know, combustible and pyrotechnic towards the end of an innings once he gets himself in, but he's not a natural um, nudger and nerdler in the way that Root is. I mean, Root's born just to angle it down to third man in a, in a one day game, and as we all know, you know, he's forty off forty without anyone noticing. That's all that was required yesterday, but there was a frenetic nature. A frenetic um, element to Stokes's innings, I thought, and you know, and it wasn't quite there on the drive, and his feet weren't quite there, which speaks of a bloke who's not in the best of form at the minute. As ever, whenever England play a game of cricket, there is that tendency to 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 make grand statements about about their their philosophy and about something that's gone profoundly wrong. Nothing's gone profoundly wrong here, but what it might be is quite a useful reminder that there are different ways to to do this thing, and they learnt that in the World Cup going through the World Cup, that beforehand it had been, you know, like, this is how you do it. Like, you know, they're, big, they're a big punching team. You know, they're George Foreman in the middle of the ring. Well, the reality is that you come up against different opponents in different conditions and different circumstances, and you do have to think on your feet a little bit, and you do have to dance a little bit. And they learned that during the World Cup. Uh, this is just a useful reminder and the, also, the, the cycle begins again. Talking of Stokes, that was his first game since that final, right? So, and how long? The best part of two years ago now. So, yeah, I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with England's approach. As ever, Morgan's logic is pretty sound, I think. Um, but there are always things that they can develop and that, that they, can, they can sharpen up. And I think having... A, reserve, a root reserve for number three is something that they do have to consider. Milan was in the squad, albeit uh, a kind of reserve floater, if you like. Livingston was also in the squad. I'm not sure if he's really a three and 50 over cricket. But Milan, you would think, would be a three and 50 over cricket. And the concerns that people have about Milan in 20 over cricket, that he eats up too many balls initially in his innings, well, that's not quite as big a problem if you're batting three in a 50 over game. And the tempo that he plays at would have suited that team, I think. Um, no one will ever, because I'm Root at three, uh, he's, he's the complete player at three, but they do need some other alternatives as well. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that um, given that Milan looks to be central to in England World Cup, T20 World Cup plans and he's not played a whole amount of cricket in India, it's also not a guarantee that he's actually going to play a lot in the IPL. I thought with Root not in the ODI squads, you know, England don't really lose anything from having Milan play three ODIs against India at the back end of the tour. Looking at the the setup of that eleven as well, I'd be surprised if that's the same eleven that they play in games two and three in this series because that middle order is flimsy, you know, or it's raw and it's certainly lacking in cricket as well. 
Billings, Moeen, Sam Curran, six, seven, eight. And that's your engine room, really, in a 50-over game. And I think they might need to look at that. My, my instinct is that I would, I would bring Milan in and I would move Stokes down or... I would leave Stokes at three, but I would bring Livingston in. in Livingston's due a game, isn't he? He's, he is, done, he's, he's done a lot a of bench warming. There's also more room for experimentation because we haven't got a 50-over World Cup just around the corner. When those games aren't kind of slipping by in the way they are for T20. What I found really interesting is to watch two ODI sides play in completely different ways. And I think it's interesting when we talk about we shouldn't criticise England too much for, for playing that way because India do almost the reverse where they, they, they're they very sedate at the start and they back themselves to catch up at the end. And, and we and lots of people have been critical of India for not getting 350 plus because of playing that way. And yesterday could have been an example. If, if England had actually made the most of that good start, they could have chased down India's total quite reasonably, uh, easily. And we'd have been saying, well, why didn't India get... 350, 360, because the way they batted for the last 15 showed that they they could get there. As it happened, England collapsed, and it looks like the way England play is the wrong way to play, and India have nailed it. But it's just down to who does it most often in a successful way. And, and England have been that team over the last few years. It just didn't come off yesterday. Yeah, I thought I thought yesterday as well, India were on for a much, much bigger score. England had a really good five-over spell from about the 35th, 36th over. Yeah. yeah, otherwise I think India could have got um, a, a massive score. Um, one... Uh, positive, I guess, for England was Johnny Bairstow's inning, 66 ball, 94. He looked like he was in a, he was on for 160, 170 at one stage. Um, I had a few messages from some of my mates yesterday going like, is, is Bairstow England's best ever ODI player? And I was thinking, nah, no, he's not, Butler or something like that. But then you look at the numbers and it is, they are, they are freakish. And I think we kind of forget it because he's had quite a weird career. 74 tests in and out of the test side for a year. He's one of England's best batsmen. Uh, struggle for the last couple of years in T20 cricket. He's a brilliant opener, brilliant in the middle. But in ODI cricket, since he came into the side in 2017, his numbers are ridiculous. He averages over 50 at the top of the order with a striker over 100. He's the only opener in ODI history to do that. The only other to average over 40 and with a striker over 100 is Jason Roy, actually. Um, only Rohit Sharma scores hundreds more regularly at the top of um, the ODI order than Bairstow. Um, Roy and Bairstow as a pair reach 50 one in every two innings they play uh, they have 1200 partnerships from 42 innings which is a rate better than anyone, any pair ever just say um, listeners that Yaz isn't even looking at his screen as he's reading <laughs> off those stats those are just ingrained in the brain very impressive um, I mean you were scurrying through our laptop <laughs> literally to keep on. up um, but I, I, I guess because he was almost like the last ingredient added to that batting order in the run-up to the 2019 World Cup and things were going pretty well before then. But do we do we appreciate enough just how ridiculous Besto is at ODI cricket in particular? No, we don't. And we didn't even during the World Cup. Take that. Take it back to that time. They had to win four in four. Besto had had a pretty kind of indifferent start to the tournament. He got a first baller here, hadn't he, to kick the tournament off. Uh, they needed to win four in four. It was desperate scenes. They'd lost three out of six, I think it was. Uh, and he went 100-100 across three or four days. You know, one against India, one against uh, New Zealand, and then that was that. And then and then careered into the semi-final, and, and the rest is history. And and yet again, in the, the, in the shakedown of that World Cup, when you come to look at it, people kind of forget that, really. Um, it's partly, I think, a symptom of, of the Bearstone enigma. It's partly that... He has so many faces in this England setup, and and some of them some of them work, and some of them look right, and some of them don't. Uh, but 
if you just take this in isolation as an ODI opening batsman, he is unquestionably the best since Truscothic that England have had and, and will in the end eclipse him, I think. Certainly his record will. There is a selflessness to his game, which I really like. And, and, and this is Morgan's great uh, legacy. Nobody, nobody plays for themselves anymore. Um, and that certainly wasn't the case in previous generations. And you see that with Bairstow. The one thing I would add here, in the context of how brilliantly he played yesterday, and it was, certainly wasn't his fault that England lost the game. However, when you get to 90 and 65 balls, and you've had a bit of a, a, bit of a stutter, and you've lost two or three quickly, and there is a deep mid-wicket, and you are winning the game, just another 45 minutes of your control wins you the game do you need to try and play that shot do you need to try and take that bloke on now this is where it comes back to the philosophy of this is the way that we play and as i stress again it was not his fault that they lost this game but when you look at these kind of clinch hit these big moments clutch moments that was significant in the story of of this innings um the the days of batting through are are gone because now it's all wild and for england at least for england but there's also a small point to make about reading the game situation. And if Bairstow had throttled back a little bit, and, as he, and he has done that as well in the past in ODI cricket, if he'd throttled back a little bit, taken some of the sting out of that moment, uh, got to his 100, moved on to 120, it may be just a run a ball from there on in. He's still, a run, <coughs> excuse me, a run a ball to 120 is still a 90 ball 120, right? So... By no means am I putting the boot in here. His innings was outstanding and he's an outstanding ODI player. But there is, in the pressure cooker, there is a point to be made there. So on the question of whether he is England's greatest white ball cricketer, we actually had an interesting letter into Wisden Cricket Monthly last month because <laughs> Owen Morgan had described in an interview to me in the previous issue, Joss Butler as a, as a one-off. And the person who wrote in, who I can't remember their name, unfortunately, um, but uh, made the very reasonable point, well, is Butler a one-off? Hang on, you've got someone in the side who was doing something just as extraordinary, different batting position. And I think you basically, I think you can throw Root into the conversation as well. I think Root, Bairstow, Butler are all very much up there as England's greatest ever white ball batsman. But they all just do different jobs. I, I think it's very hard to say one is better than the other because they all do what they do fantastically well. I guess the argument you could make with Butler, I think if you shoved Butler up to open in ODI cricket, he'd have a pretty extraordinary record as well. We'll never see if that's that, if that's the case or not, but that that's what I suspect, having seen what he does in T Twenty cricket. Um, whereas Bestow and Roots is a perhaps more specialist role, that's definitely where they're best placed. I think Butler just looks like he can do it all. Um, but then we, we we do more often than we should. We come back to kind of Bestow v Butler in in different types of cricket and in different roles, and we should probably just appreciate that we've got both of them rather than kind of matching them up against each other. Yeah, I kind of wonder if. Uh... Well, Besto for for a while has insisted that he doesn't want to be a white ball specialist, and I wonder if that kind of plays into our perception of him. There's like this frustration around Besto as someone who uh, still wants to play Test cricket, even though he hasn't quite got the returns in recent years. But actually, just if you if you just separate it, like look just at the white ball output in the last three four years, it's up there with the very best in the world. I think um, it's also partly the the opening partnership he has with Roy. They've been so much a pair that actually to talk about best, I was the best of the lot, doesn't necessarily fit with that narrative. Now, what we've seen recently is that Roy is, is, hasn't been able to be as consistent as he was in the lead-up to the World Cup and when he came back in that after he'd had an injury in that World Cup, whereas Besto just keeps on going. And I think he is the senior, um, 
he's the he's the better player of the two. I think he you, you back to come good more often. Yeah, just just on the game yesterday, I thought Indy did quite well to starve best over the strike when Stokes came in, um, and then I think when Morgan came in as well. Um, there's quite a long period where Besto barely faced the ball. So maybe that shot stemmed from a frustration just not, not facing much. Um, I've got a question for you, Yaz. You you tweeted something yesterday, didn't you? Yes, I did. Uh, tell, tell tell our listeners, tell our hordes of army of listeners what you tweeted. I tweeted something along the lines of uh, ODI cricket is, is rubbish. Is my least, is by some, it is my least favourite format, which doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. So I mean, relative to the other two... That's nowhere near hysterical enough for Twitter. You've got to slam it. You can't well, just say it's my least favourite. That's what, not there, social there's, media. There's a, there's a safety in the tweet in that ODI ultras don't really exist. Like, if you if you said that about <laughs> yeah. Test Cricket or T20I Cricket, you get a lot of very shouty people. And also, we know how much you love the other two. Yeah. So you're not, it's not, you're not really slamming it too much. So come yeah. on then. Spill the beans. Why? Um, part of the reason why people in England have really enjoyed it for the last five years is because of how good England is. I think um, England have been for, for five, six years. I think that... Uh, you get quite long periods which almost feel like, um, you know, in test cricket where teams feel like they need to catch up with the over rate a little bit and you get a few overs of off spin that doesn't really, when not much is really happening, there's not really much of a battle between bat and ball. I think you do get that quite a lot in the middle overs of ODI cricket. Still, I know the game's changing a little bit. I think that um, in T20 cricket, I like the... Uh, it's, it's more fresh as a format, still evolving quite a lot. So you get new tactical ideas come into place and it's, and the way in which people play is uh, changing quite quickly. And, and as a result, the format is more interesting. If you're just comparing the two, I still enjoy ODI cricket, um, but I don't, I don't know. I think also part of it is uh, growing up, there was just so much ODI cricket that was just the same. So you just had like two 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 five plays, 245. I know it's not quite like that anymore, um, but... I guess it, it was always like way, way below test cricket for me. And as T20 cricket has become uh, more and more professional and taken more and more seriously, that's that's gone past it. Joe? I would say it probably is my least favourite of the three, but not by much, uh, just a little bit. And also the 50 over World Cup was, I think I, I, I think I just kind of deal in World Cups. <laughs> T20 is the one around the corner. So that's yeah. what I'm kind of most excited by. Um, but no, I, I think there's something... Certainly from the kind of rhythms of working and following cricket, I much prefer an ODI because the T20 is kind of, it's, it's hard to hard to work and cover it and it's gone. Whereas an ODI, there, there is a rhythm to it in a way that you get with a, with a day's test cricket that, that I still like. And as a spectator sport, I still think 50 over cricket, if you're at the ground, is a brilliant day. You get a proper day's cricket, you get a result at the end of it. I think that that's right up there Um and sometimes with a day's test cricket for me, depending on what that day of test cricket offers. Um, whereas T20 as a spectator experience is great in a different way, but it's, it's been and gone before you know it really. Yeah. I'm definitely not slagging it off. I still enjoy watching it. Um, just compared to the other two, I don't mm. enjoy it quite. You're, you're, you're test ODI T20, are you? Well, well, obviously, obviously the five day games out there on its own. Um, there's the line in the wire by Poot, the world going one way, people another and I am, I am the people in that, that equation. Uh, I still retain uh, a deep respect for 50 over cricket um, and, and a deeper respect for that than, than I do 20 over cricket. And you talk about these world events. I, I think as a sporting feat to, to pull off a 50 over World Cup win is a deeper and more substantial sporting achievement than to, to pull off a, a two-week 20 over jamboree uh, when you can 
you can peak at the right time or someone can do something outrageous or Marlon Samuels can play the innings of his life or whatever it might be. Uh, whereas if you win a 50 over World Cup, then you've earned every single bit of that. Uh, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a deeper and more substantial game. Um, uh, and also weirdly sturdy. You know, 1970... 1971 was, I think, the first game, a kind of accidental game play by England and Australia when the Test matches got washed out and all of that. Uh, and it's been written off routinely for the, for the best part of, of 50 years, well, exactly 50 years. Uh, and yet, I still think it's an evolving game. And while the formulaic element of 50 over cricket, I can see that. There, there's formulaic elements to all sport, I think, and there is formulaic elements to, to 20 over cricket. Uh, there is, there is still, I think, a, a, an evolution of technique and theory in, 20, in 50 over cricket, which, which maybe I wouldn't have said with as much confidence six or seven years ago, for example. And just, just talking of that era, incidentally, about English cricket, I remember I spoke to two very prominent, um, very successful England cricketers, uh, and it would have been 2013, and both of them were at the time in the 50 over team. And both of them, it was, in fact, it was a bit earlier than that. It was 2011. 2012, sorry. Definitely 2012, it was. They were both in the England ODI team at the time and couldn't stand 50 over cricket. And they both told, told me that, independent of each other, uh, off the record. They just couldn't stand it. Had no interest in it. T20 was taking over the world. They still cared very deeply about test cricket. 50 over cricket was, was uh, an inconvenience to them. And they were in the team at the time. I don't think their position was particularly unusual. No, they were in a pretty dire English team at sure. the time who played really boring ODI in cricket. Sure, but as fans, like, you'd kind of think, well, try and try and invest a little bit more sure, passion and concern into it. All I mean is if they were playing under Owen Morgan, they might have felt a bit more energised by what they were part of. Possibly, possibly. Um, but I do think it was also indicative of the culture at the time uh, that this, was, this, was, this felt like a... Like a a dying art in a way that I, that I don't think it does anymore. A, a couple more things comparing T20i cricket and ODIs or T20 and 50 over cricket. I think in T20, I think it's much, much harder to be um, a good, a very effective 50 over bowler um, just because you need to be able to do quite a lot more. In T20 cricket, you can be like a, like a power play specialist or a death specialist and that's the majority of your overs can be fit into one category quite hard for a seamer to actually be uh, very good across the, the different phases in a uh, 50 over game and they will have to bowl, bowl in all three phases realistically in 50 over cricket which, which um, is a feather in the cap for 50 over cricket right but I think that makes T20 cricket more watchable almost because you have more bowlers who can have an impact I think but also you can also be a bowler in T20 cricket and if you go at eight and a half and over and you're you know four overs one for 36 then that's kind of okay. But if you extrapolate that kind of limited impact across 10-over spell in a 50-over game, then you become unpickable, unselectable. Uh, I'm not saying that there's not an immense amount of skill involved in bowling 24, 24 balls in a game. And we're seeing T20 specialists more and more, and legitimately so. But I think to survive in international cricket as a 50-over as a cricketer requires... Just that little bit more. And we, it depends what people watch their sport for. We might watch it for pure entertainment in that respect. Nothing can touch T20 cricket. But if you, if, and others people may, may want to watch it because of a, you know, they want to see a kind of deeper expression of sporting brilliance or excellence. 
And I guess maybe that's where I come in on that debate. Yeah, that's fair enough. But uh, I, I, I kind of like the uh, specific specialisation in T20 cricket as well. Like players who have one very specific role and they absolutely nail it. I like the idea of batsmen nowadays who um, will get on to Surya Kumar Yadav later in the show. But, what, a, what an innings. You no, know, exactly. But play, players who just like you bat 30 balls, you get as many runs as that 30 balls and you're supposed to bat in the first half of the innings and you've got the other guys to do the rest. I kind of like that. Um, yeah. and, and yet you call 50 over cricket formulaic. I don't know. I don't know, well, I don't know where we enough, stand there. Fair enough. Let's um, move on. Well, let's let's move on to the... Well, just a little bit more on the ODIs first. All right, let's just um, do some more of that. Um, just just on... Um, it's, it's, it's worth saying that this is not a full-strength England side. Joffre Arch is back in the UK, nursing his elbow injury. Chris Wokes and Joe Root have been rested, which means opportunities for others, uh, namely uh, some fringe bowlers, I guess, the Curran brothers, Moeen... Uh, and Reese Topley and Matt Parkinson, who haven't played yet this series, who I'm sure will later on. Um, that is a hard Indian batting lineup to come up against if you don't play that much international cricket. Darwan, Sharma, Kohli, Lancashire's Shreyas Iyer, who unfortunately is out of the rest of the, the series in the first half of what the IPL. What a coup by Lancashire. That is unbelievable signing. I, I want to know the. I want to read a long, long read article on how that. Came I'd also together. like to know what what they're saying in the the hundred war rooms as well. <laughs> yeah. When Langs have picked him for the 50 over comp. Yeah. Outstanding. Looking work. forward to the, the Lancashire streaming numbers. Um, yeah. They're going to be doing that. Um, on, on Tom Curran in particular, um, he, he only played one of the T20s. He bowled two overs that went for 26. He played in the ODR, the first ODR of the series. His recent record isn't that great. He was part of the 2019 World Cup winning squad, obviously, but he didn't play. He played Test cricket a few years ago. Barely played first-class cricket since because of his IPL gigs, even though he doesn't often play in the IPL. And he's had a really tough winter. He uh, was the most expensive overseas bowler in the IPL uh, who, who played more than one game, went over 11 and over this winter in the T20Is and has taken just one wicket in his last nine ODIs. Um, I thought he bowled okay yesterday, but I almost see that as being like as good a day as it really gets for Curran at the moment. Joe, what, what do you think's happened to Tom Curran? A few years ago when he took that five for in Australia... Um, there's a sense that this was this is a guy who's going to be really central to England's plans over the next few years in white ball cricket, and he's England have put a lot of time into him, but he's not really progressed as a as a player, and I'm I'm sure he will have better days than he's had recently, but yeah, the, the progression's not really been there. It hasn't. I mean, I, I wonder. He did have some impressive performances for England. He has done. I wonder if he was perhaps fast tracked a bit too quickly, or perhaps his reputation perhaps exceeded his his ability or his potential. Um, you certainly see opposition sides now target him. You really notice that in T20 cricket. And I think once you get that sort of tag on your head, as it were, that you're the bowler to target in an attack, it becomes really difficult, especially if you're in this England side, in the T20s, bowling on the same side as Joffre Archer, who we know they're not going to necessarily go after in the same way. You know when Tom Curran comes on, right, this is it. They're going to try and hit as many runs off this four overs as they can. I thought, he, yeah, I thought he bowled fine yesterday, but I, I agree. I, I completely understand what you mean, that that felt actually like quite a good day. And he went, what, it was none for 60 odd in the end. Um, I can't help but feel there are probably better options and certainly options that are worth looking at ahead of him. Um, I risk repeating myself, but Saki Mahmood, as we talked about on last week's show, I would absolutely be having him above Tom Curran at the moment to at the very least have a look. Reese Topley, you've obviously got that that left arm angle um, that I think he'll get a go in, in at least one of the next two ODIs. But I think what we've seen with England is, and we saw this 
in the lead up to the World Cup up and at the World Cup. They, Morgan really doesn't change his eleven unless he has to, very, very occasionally. So Tom Curran has been back up for so long that he's almost due this opportunity to play in the eleven because a position's opened up. But actually, in the meantime, I think players might have come along who are probably more deserving or might do a better job than him. Uh, so the mo- it feels like a little like we're going through the motions of Tom Curran's getting his game time to, to see whether he's, he's worth his spot or not. Um, and I think there might be more more pressing contenders outside of the group. He, he won't mind this fact, uh, but he's he secured another IPL gig uh, with Delhi Capitals, which means that he'll play next to no um, Red Bull cricket for Surrey in the first half of the season, at least. Again, which is the third or fourth season that's happened. Indeed. And, and I think that is quite key to his story, really. Um, because if you want proper longevity as a as a top class seamer then then you need to to be able to flip from one ball to the other and one format to the other um and you risk i think as a bowler in particular becoming sort of funneled or kettled if you like into into one particular role one particular dynamic uh and if that starts to to wobble a little bit then it's hard to know exactly where you go. And with with Current, who began as a red ball bowler, took seven for 20-odd, you know, albeit in Division 2. Leading wicket-taker in the country in 2015, I think, started, started his red ball career for Surrey um, with, with a bang. The, the concern w- would be, I think, if you're looking at him from a, from a neutral's perspective, where's the body of work going to come from if you are increasingly just recognised as someone who's going to be a kind of backup third seamer, fourth seamer with a white ball here and there, hoping to get to get the nod if one or two of the bigger hitters are, are unfit or, or rested or whatever. Uh, in an ideal world, you want a broader broader body of work than, than, than he's currently able to, to show or build upon. Do you think bowlers who um, kind of break through, who have like quite distinctive slower balls... Um, do you think they have quite a short shelf, short shelf life? Um, yeah, hold on. <laughs> uh, got got there eventually. Um, in at the at the very top level, in yeah. that there is kind of um, something novel about them initially, but batsmen once they've faced them a few times, kind of get used to it, pick the variations better. I think that's definitely true. I think we've seen. I think we could probably all think of examples. Pat Brown would be one who who burst onto the scene in, in the T Twenty Blast took loads of wickets with that knuckleball. Um, he's had lots of injury problems since, but, but also hasn't been quite as effective as he's played. Other players that burst onto the scene, I'm sure there what, was... Uh, and- Andrew Ty yeah. was another one who uh, had quite sustained success over a couple of years, but now seems to be quite expensive more often mm. than not. Dern back. Yeah, another good example. So yeah, I think, I think that has to be the case. And bowlers always talk about the fact they need to keep evolving, but I mean... Uh, it's difficult to keep evolving. I mean, at some point you reach the, the limit of your skills or you can't, how many different types of slow ball can you actually have? And Tom Curran hasn't got the, the, the express pace to get himself out of trouble. Yeah, and that, when you boil it all down, is, is critical, isn't it, to the, to the Tom Curran story. Um, if he just had that extra yard, yard and a half, then it could compensate. Um, uh, as it is, top players, they do, as Joe says, they do wait for him because... He, he he's not especially tall. He's not skiddy either. He's 
the trajectory of a Tom Curran decent length delivery is perfect in one day cricket. You just climb into for the batsman. It. For the batsman, yeah, sorry. You just climb into it. Uh, and this is where I come back to the four day point on him. Um, he shouldn't discard that. And uh, albeit, of course, a modern cricketer's career is not dependent necessarily on their own heart. It's also very much driven by where, where the money is, understandably so. And, and I don't have any issue with that. Uh, but he said to a journalist friend of ours a few years ago, I, I, I looked at it and thought, I want to be the best, the most skillful white ball bowler in the world, which was a laudable thing to say. Uh, but it comes with consequences, I think. Uh, and that's the concern with Curran, that he'll end up becoming a kind of one-trick pony. And if that starts to, to fall away a little bit, then you're not left with an enormous amount um, to fall back on. Mm. But we shall see. I think it's... Quite interesting how uh, playing red ball cricket can actually help you in 50 over cricket in particular. Totally. I think, like, exactly I, think I was thinking specifically Chris Wokes. Chris Wokes. I was going to bring him up. You're bang on In, in the, um, he had a, one of a number of England players who had a very good World Cup when they won it. Um, but did, we, he, did we win it? Yeah, we did win it. Um, but he he did so bowling like quite classical new ball spells. Um, yeah. And that playing, uh, taking 400, 500 first-class wickets must have helped. And and I think this is what's happened a bit with Tom Curran is that the kind of auto mode seems to be to not get hit rather than to take wickets. And I think that's largely a product of how he's used in T20 and the fact that he's become a death bowler. But he should... England, when he first came through, England would have been thinking he's a bowler who can take wickets with a new ball in 50-over cricket. Um, and now he doesn't really get the new ball. Uh, I can't remember the last time he took the... New ball in a in an ODI. He's taken it a few times. Um, so he, he he did it a few times before Archer played for England. Right. Um, and yeah. he actually did okay opening the bowling. And then he's done it two or three times since then. Um, but you're yeah, not getting that opportunity with the new ball. The few overs that it's going to do a little yeah. bit, and then you come on in the middle overs, and you're being targeted as the the weak link in the attack. It's a, it's a really tricky job he's got. Mm, definitely. Um, one of the uh, kind of trends of the winter, I guess, has been Indian players uh, doing really well straight away in the international careers. So you've got Natarajan, Siraj, Gill, Saini, Sundar, Aksar Patel, Ishan Kishan, Kunal Pandya, and Prasid Krishna, and Surya Kumar Yadav, who in his second and third games, but his first and second two innings, was absolutely brilliant for India in the T20Is. Uh, the 30-year-old Mumbai Indians batsman scored 89 or 48 across his two innings. Um, he's, he's absolutely amazing. Where, where's he been? <laughs> well, where, where he's been was... The, the big breakthrough was the IPL last autumn time. And I remember Ian Bishop commentating on a game and saying, he is, he is the boy. Trust me, he is the boy. Uh, he's, he's a late bloomer for Indian cricket. Um, as you say, he's 30-year-old. He's got a decent record behind him, although not an outstanding record, because often Indian batsmen are averaging 55, 60 in, in first-class cricket. He averages 45, but he's made, I think, 1,400s uh, from 70-odd games. So he can play. Um, what you see with him is a player who now knows that he's good enough for that level. And uh, that innings was that perfect combination of, of arrogance and control. You he know, hit Joffre Arch of a six, hooked Joffre Arch of a six, ball. first ball in the It, it was a fascinating shot, Matt, because... <laughs> great reaction from Archer as well, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> and Archer just kind of pissed himself. And it, it was, a, it was a, a brilliant moment because for all that it was spectacularly audacious and so on, 
there's not any other shot he could have played to the ball. Because if you look <laughs> at it closely, he's kind of thought, right, Archer, shit, Archer, back and across, back and across. And then it's there and it's in at his chest and he kind of turns his head slightly and crouches slightly, by which point the instincts have taken over and the bat's getting in the way because otherwise it's taking, him, yeah. taking his shoulder out or his chest out. And he happens to, to, to stick it over long Execute off. Execute it quite well. I'm not saying it's, a, it's, it's, it's not, not a great shot. Did but you see what he said after the game about it? No. He said he, he, he knows that Archer quite often bowls so down his first start. coming. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think you'd have to because, I mean, his first movement was anticipating that back and across. Yeah. Uh, the, the shot for me was the shot over, over extra cover for six. I forget who it was again. Off Rashid, maybe? Yeah, I think it was, yeah. was Rashid, yeah. Dances down a little bit, keeps in the shot, kind of Damien Martin style. Uh, he's not reaching for it, uh, and yeah, sort of ten rows back. It was a it was an innings that was also beautiful. And whenever you get a beautiful, crazy innings in twenty over cricket, that's that's always quite memorable. I think there was quite a lot of online chatter about Darren Milan again. It really um, um, England's most pressing concern. I'm going to put it out there: isn't the bloke who averages fifty? Um, but I think his and Butler's partnership highlights how pundits still haven't got talking about T20 cricket quite right yet. Um, both of them in the last game of the series, despite scoring half centuries, uh, their scoring rate was absolutely miles off the required run rate. Yet you still had commentators, including Atherton, for example, describing Milan's innings as a, as a great one. Um, and it wasn't that kind of, that'll show them innings that I think a lot of people made out. And I think that it boils down to, quite simply, just how we talk about um, and how we record those innings, because at the moment we still, a T20 scorecard looks exactly the same as a test match scorecard, but the games are completely different. Um, and I just think that there should be uh, metrics that show how effective a T20 innings are. And they don't have to be things like Crickviz's batting impact that does that in a kind of expected goals kind of way, but almost like you have um, something that says the percentage of balls used and the percentage of runs scored, for example, particularly in a run chase, I think, just to kind of illustrate clearly actually how effective was that and presumably the the icc t20i rankings which milan is still top of the mm. batting rankings yeah, but mild. don't take that stuff into account at all yeah in terms of uh actual match impacts and having a strike rate that's going to win you a game um and that that ranking is often the things that is referred to when he is criticized mm. anyway on the on the series as a whole Joe, we were saying before we recorded that I don't think that series could have gone worse for England, bizarrely, even though they won two games because they won two games early in the series. Their plan was to to, to get wins uh, with them sticking to plan A under their belt. But then when it did go wrong, it was too late for them to try other things out. And they don't have that many games before the T20 World Cup. Um, and Owen Morgan has already said that he's not expecting to have a full-strength squad for much of the summer, if at all. Yeah, well, I, I completely agree. Basically, that is how it's played out. Morgan, as I said before, he wants to pick his best side whenever he can, and that's been the route they've gone down. But then when you see players like Curran or like Chris Jordan start to lose a bit of form, and then you don't really have the chance to try someone else. Um, got a feel for... Uh, Phil and I were talking about this yesterday. Got a feel for Matt Parkinson. I mean, I think he's been with the England squad the since school. The entire winter. Entire yeah. winter yeah. Is that definitely the case? Definitely the case. Definitely the case. He's been there the entire winter. Um, I think he will play in at least one of the, the games to come. Well, he, won't play, he won't play tomorrow with the series still on the line. I'd be very surprised if he plays tomorrow. I I'd, mean, lo I'd, love it, I'd love it too. And, if, and my word, it'd be merciful to give him a game of cricket. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much talk about duty of care. Rightly so. There's so much talk about the mental strain of bubbles and rightly so. 
Matt Parkinson's been a net bowler for... Three months. Three months? Yeah. Well into three months now. And we talk about the strains of playing and the need for rest after that. Well, surely the strains of not playing, just sitting in your hotel room, coming out, bowling in the net, going back to your hotel room, that's got to be the worst of the lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's not really on. I think but there's a bec- question to be asked there. And it's because he's a junior player, he can just do that endlessly. Whereas someone like Joss Butler or Moen Ali or Johnny Bairstow has a kind of very carefully defined schedule. Uh, Parkinson seems to have somehow slipped through the net. And also, he's not actually... Part, part, part of the reason why players were rested, we know, is because of the IPL. But Parkinson's going straight into the county championship season. Like, he might not necessarily play every game in April, but he is going straight from one... God, if he comes back another. and he doesn't get picked for the first county championship game, which is potentially very likely, yeah. how depressing is that for that? Yeah, re- really tough time for him. And I think it's worth, um, it's probably worth, I mean, I think we should probably bring it up when we speak next time we speak to someone at the ECB because it does feel like that there's an inconsistency there. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Joe, just quickly on what England can do with their bowls. What, what do you think they can do in the summer? Do, like We talked about it a little bit last week, but Tamar Mills, Sakiba Mahmood, David Willey, those are guys who they should be looking at, you think? Yeah, Tamar Mills, I mean... Is he fit? Is he, he current, says he is. Is he yeah. currently fit? Okay, he I mean, well, absolutely. I'd love to see him play for England again. I think those three are the, are the three that I would that I would look at. I mean, Willie's got an exceptional record. Didn't really deserve to be dropped in the first place. Uh, and then I think carried himself really well when he came back into the ODI side. Did brilliantly against play the series, I, I Yeah, did yeah. brilliantly against Ireland. Um, so yeah, I would I would take a look. I mean, Jordan obviously offers so much in theory. Um, exceptional fielder can hit big with the bat and he's been England's most reliable death bowler and Morgan really backs him. But his form has not been great and it's been worse in T20 franchises than it has for England. Well, one thing that I think is uh, a bit of a myth is that Chris Jordan saves his best performances for England. Um, In his last 14... That's definitely the impression I've got. Well, in his last 14 T20 games for England, he's gone at over 10s in eight of them. Which isn't. I know he bowls to death, and that's going to happen sometimes. But that's not a great percentage. Um, he's not. He's not had. Uh, yeah, his his numbers for England for for a while haven't been great. Um, they are possibly slightly better than his IPL numbers, but still, um, he's played so much T20I cricket for England. You kind of feel that England aren't going to really go go away from the Jordan no, plan. Is, is this kind of this late into the almost like a planning. kind of form versus faith thing that yeah. goes on with Morgan? backing the players that he trusts as long as he possibly can. Because uh, we haven't seen players break into that group, partly because England have been so good. But, I mean, other than Joffre Archer, we haven't really seen a kind of bolter come from, from nowhere for a, for a long time. Yeah, they did, in fairness, try it for that New Zealand tour after the, the World Cup. Pat Brown played, Lewis Gregory played, Sakeem Mood, Matt Parkinson. They, they that, all played that yeah, trip they did tour. That tour yeah. um, but I guess Brown hasn't, yeah, he's been injured, lost form a little bit. Uh, Sakeem Mahmood, I think, would have been in India had it not been for the PSL. I get that impression that he was England that was thought better under- for his exactly, and to be honest, it was going pretty well Which as a leading taker. Absolutely true as well, I think. Um, so yeah, I'd expect Sakeem to play um, come the summer. Um, before we go on with the, with the with the rest of the show, we have got some big podcast news. Uh, from next week, we have a new regular guest, Mark Butcher, will be uh, a regular on the show throughout the summer. Swapping the the commentary box in Chennai for a seat next to us in our studio. Uh, the show's format and structure will remain broadly the same, so so don't worry. 
it won't be it won't be too different. Uh, Phil, you're you're actually working closely with Butch on another project. Yeah, uh, Mark's writing uh, his book, his autobiography this year, this this summer. Um, he's got quite a story to tell, uh, and we spent yesterday actually going through it uh, here at the Oval. Um, the first of numerous conversations to take place over the next six weeks or so. It's it's an exciting gig actually. Um, and we're going to enlist his, his old man, Alan, the legendary Alan Butcher, uh, and one or two of his teammates as well, hopefully a couple of the Australians, and we're going to base the book around that day, that day at, at Headingley, um, and use that as the the hook upon which to hang a life, really. Um, and it was lovely yesterday. My moment of the week would have been this, really, that... You know, the sun was out yesterday and there was a little game taking place, an inter-squad game between the Surrey firsts, seconds, thirds, fourths, a few a few pretenders in there as well. A couple of uh, you know, young cricketers from the MCC were involved as well, uh, including one lad called Justin Broad, uh, who, who stole the show with a brilliant sort of 40 or, 40 or 50 odd um, look the part. I enjoy Liam Plunkett bowling just when England and, were bowling. Well, in the exactly middle that. <laughs> that. That was, yeah, I, I think it might have been Vish who, who tweeted, oh, yeah, penny for Liam Plunkett where, wherever he is now. And he was right out there with his top knot running in from the uh, from the pavilion end here at the Oval. And, and it was just a nice, there was a sort of symmetry to it because Mark was talking about, you know, growing up here. But literally being three year old in the dressing room when Alan was was playing, of course, opening the batting for Surrey, and and there being a sense of of uh, predestination, if you like, that he would end up captaining the club, and that and now he looks back on the place, you know, fifty odd years on or forty five, fifty years on, and and the next intake is still out there. It's, uh, it's you know, it's 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 early early season. And yet there are still players out there hoping for the best, hoping to make their mark. And, and there's, a, there's a kind of a sense of the wheel of fortune rolling along, you know. And it was just a nice afternoon to get back into it. Uh, the season begins in earnest in two weeks from now on the 8th. Yeah, two weeks tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, and just another little shout out, actually, for a lad called Harry Phillips, who was in the Essex squad for their two-day game against Lancashire this week. And uh, he's a, an old teammate of mine. Um, he didn't say a word for three years when he was in our dressing room. He threw the odd bat, to be fair. Little kid at the time, left hand, left hand, uh, left hand bat, left arm seamer. Um, he's shot up in the last two years and become far too good for our club. And now he's, he's in the Essex squad. So, so good luck to H. Uh, he's one of your own. You've not said that in a long time in this pod. <laughs> Elsewhere in international cricket, uh, New Zealand are 2-0 up against Bangladesh in an ODI series in New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand are without both Ross Taylor and Kane Williamson for the first time since 2014. Uh, Tom Latham uh, is their captain and he scored an unbeaten 100 in the second game. Afghanistan beat Zimbabwe 3-0 in the T20I series. South Africa women beat India 2-1 in the T20I series in India. Lizelle Lee hit a quick 70 in the first game as South Africa chased 159. In the second, South Africa comfortably chased down 133. And in the third, India comfortably chased 114. Um, Shafali Verma hit a 30-ball 60 in the third game. I'd, I'd very much recommend finding the highlights there on the BCCI website. Um, they've also found another gun young bat in 17-year-old Richard Ghost, who hit 44 in the second game. Um, and whilst we're talking about the BCCI website... Um, they, they put oh, I up, know where you're going. <laughs> they put up a um, they put up highlights throughout the game, and they put up um, 
the the moment where Owen Morgan got dropped first ball um, off uh, by Virat Kohli at slip, and then Morgan saw it was caught, so he was kind of wandering out of his crease and was then nearly run out. Um, it's a great clip, but it's been headlined by the BCCI as a brilliant piece of fielding from Virat Kohli. But it's like quite a standard drop catch and then a missed run out opportunity. So, um, so four. But so, yeah. Depends on your point of view, I guess. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I thought that, that was quite, quite amusing. <laughs> um, just on women's cricket in India, reports in India are suggesting that there will not be an expansion of the Women's T20 Challenge Tournament that's been happening over the last few years. Uh, a women's IPL has been promised for a while now and it's and it's not really happened which is what's the justification no it's just reports at the moment there's not been an official announcement so it, it might still happen but looking unlikely um, it'll be pretty lamentable if it's if it's nothing more than it was last year which were essentially a few exhibition games mm. with some vague and unconvincing competition around it you know what four or five games it was and the same as the year before that as yeah. well I mean they've yeah, yeah. I don't know how many exhibitions you can have before you get going with a real thing, really. There was quite a telling line from Verma actually after she hit a 60, which was, um, I don't know when I'm next going to play. So I want to make sure that, I wanted to make sure today that it it, it went well. Um, yeah, which is such a shame when it's what a year and two weeks since they played in front of 87,000 people at the MCG. Um, yeah, um, some, some more positive news this week uh, for the English recreational game uh, from March the 29th. Organised outdoor cricket can resume. Outdoor netting is allowed. Uh, changing rooms, etc. remain closed. But as long as there's no bad news in the next few weeks, the club season should begin on time. Huge um, news. There. And related to people playing cricket, Phil, you want to talk a little bit about the Dynamo's cricket launch? Just wanted to mention it really. And uh, and for any, any people involved with clubs or any parents listening to the show or any kids any 8 to 11-year-olds listening in? Uh, sorry for the bad language earlier, if you were. Uh, yeah, it's simply um, that the Dynamo's Cricket uh, Initiative, ECB initiative, that uh, was due to be launched last year and wasn't, for obvious reasons, um, is launched in earnest this year. And it is the, the next step from the All-Stars Cricket thing. So the All-Stars Cricket thing was rolled out um, with a degree of success initially, and then it deepened and it became more substantial um, in, in the last couple of years. All Stars deals with with kids at that entry level age. Dynamos deals with kids at the eight to eleven year old age, um, when obviously they're beginning to develop, but they're also beginning to look at other things as well um, and beginning to pick and choose uh, what they what they may or may not be wanting to do with it, with their time. So it's it's an important uh, juncture in a child's development and and um, you just need to go on the ECB website basically and read up on it. Um, all clubs worth their salt will be involved with the, the scheme. Um, there are benefits to, to the kids and to the parents as well. There's, you know, there's, there's equipment that you can, you can purchase. You essentially buy, um, uh, buy the program itself. Uh, and with that comes an affiliation to the club. Uh, there will be a club within your vicinity that will be running this Dynamo scheme. Um, it's a nationwide scheme, um, and it's designed to bring through kids that uh, invariably won't have had much experience of the game before. So it's it's a good entry level uh, initiative for those kids, as I say, between the ages of, of eight and eleven. Just in brackets, the really big challenge will be four years down the line when the ch the kids are fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, because that's when data and surveys have showed that that's when kids tend to fall away from the game a lot more. Um, they fall away from a lot of recreational pursuits, but cricket takes its hit 
with kids at that age. So the next step for the ECB, and I know that they are aware of this, is how do we retain the mid-teen cricketer as well as bring through, uh, you know, enthusiasts at the early points. Mm. Interesting. Joe, what's your moment of the week? So um, I think we each have our kind of markers that the the new season is just around the corner, whether it's kind of the, the smell of cut grass or linseed oil or that point where you get to the that point in the football season where you just don't care anymore. That's always a sign for me that the cricket season is around the corner. Um, but really for me, it's, it's generally when 500 pages of questionnaires from county cricketers arrive on my desk to be proofread uh, for the cricketers who's who, which Phil, I worked out, we have been working on the cricketers who, who's who oh, for, don't, a, for don't. 11 years now. Oh, 11 years. I was editor for a few of those. Benj Moorhead now does that from his uh, mansion in Italy. <laughs> his um, castle. <laughs> But um, I thought I would pick out a few of the highlights from this year's questionnaires. Before you get to highlights, what, what, is, what is the who's who for people who don't? What is the who's who? Good point. Okay, so it's basically, it's, it's um, the who's who is featuring every county cricketer, male and female, who will be playing this summer uh, with a few team profiles and, and articles on county cricket thrown in there as well. So it's, it's how you can get to know every county cricketer in the country. Uh, so a, and a survey gets sent out to them and then they fill in their questionnaire uh, if they can be bothered. Thankfully, most can. Uh, and then uh, we stick it in a book, which has been going for, I think, 41, 42 years. So Phil and I have only done a quarter of that. Um, so yeah, as I said, a few a few highlights from this year's edition. So one, it's official. Wayne Madsen is the best batsman in county cricket, which uh, I knew is good, but this, this came as news to me. So we are, one of the questions that was asked is um, the most difficult opponent in county cricket uh, and also if you could take one shot from any other county cricketer, what would it be? And, and Madsen came up all the time. Uh, the the shot was, there was a few different shots, but the main one was the ramp, wasn't it? I think The Madsen ramp, the ramp, the, the Madsen reverse sweep, the Madsen conventional sweep, the Madsen block. The book, the book is just Madsen. It's amazing. So we used to ask this question uh, and then stopped it because everyone said Marcus Gothic. Gothic. Everyone said Gothic. So it's reintroduced. And now it's Wayne Madsen, which is like, I mean, he's obviously a very, very good player, but comes, it's interesting to know what, you're kind of the, the, his peers think of him uh, and he's clearly right up there at the top other trivia um so there are two ollie robinsons in county cricket the sussex seamer and the kent keeper batsman uh i found out that they both have the same birthday remarkably <laughs> december the first both ollie robinsons born on december the first i Robinson thought this day. must be an error when i was proofreading it because i thought we'd basically they'd mixed up the dates but different years Sussex, 1993, Kent, 1998, but both born December the 1st. Wow, what are the word. chances? Whoa, oh, wow. my word. But my favourite bit, Chris Dent, um, Gloucester Supremo, opening bat and captain, um, newly sporting a beard in recent years, and, and it, it changes the look of Chris Dent quite dramatically. And I would know that, 11 years with the who's who. Um, <laughs> and his, his, one of the questions that we were asking um, was, if you could change one rule in the game or one law in the game, what would it be? in county cricket uh, or in first class cricket and he said five runs if you hit the stumps at the other end with a straight drive five runs to the batting side if you hit the stumps with a straight drive um, I like that idea a lot I can see no reason why it shouldn't work I think it adds a little bit of little bit of cheekiness to the whole whole affair bowlers will be having to try and stop that delivery as well as kind of you know giving a finger to it with, to try and run out the, the dude at the other end 
Uh, and also, having been there myself, when you're struggling for runs and you finally nail one and it just takes that, that stump, those stumps at the other end. That is five's a, a lot, though. It's a killer. It's a killer. To give five runs for that. I, I think, I think there's it's something in it. Because five is the great sort of enigma number, isn't it, in cricket? And, and, and the equivalent of hitting the helmet. Yeah, but, exactly. But actually through skill this time rather than just... Five is, five is dumb five's a lot. Five That's really demoralising yeah. for a bowler. Especially if it just kind of rolls back from yeah. a poor defensive <laughs> well, and you're on the floor. Mark Wood's sort of on the floor scrabbling to try and get okay, to Okay, well, it. we'll have to get get, uh, get Dency on the show to find out if he would want the, those runs to go to the batsman. As an opening bat, he probably would. He probably would. You could end up having like a fielder kind of crouched down in front of the stumps to kind of predict it if you did it if it was five five runs yeah, is a now, lot now that is something a um, very very straight silly mid on yeah, exactly. yeah 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 um, anyway uh, I like that that was my <laughs> highlight from the book anyway another few one of the new questions we asked this year was uh, what would you do if you were Prime Minister uh, Hasib Hamid would ban all roadworks mm. uh, <laughs> which is a kind of short term thinking I think Boris Johnson could get behind yeah. just uh, win a few votes that way um, it makes it seem that he just had a really bad day up to that point but like, yeah roadworks <laughs> yeah. actually uh, Catherine Brunt has the date of all her major career achievements tattooed on her ribs, which you know she's been around for a, for a while. That must be quite a, a busy rib cage that she's uh, she's got now. <laughs> sorry, was that was that in answer to what will you do if you were prime minister? No, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I, I jumped. I'm not sure what it was in answer to. I think she might have just told us that because she wanted to. Nice. Oh, surprising fact. We asked for a surprising okay, fact. Okay. Uh, and on that theme, surprising fact. Uh, finally, Ollie Stone's great granddad created the Twix. Really? No, get out. Apparently. Wow. It doesn't provide any proof or any more detail <laughs> to that, but yeah. Wow. And, and, it's and a flamboyant he... life. It's not true. <laughs> we have to get him on, find and, out. And he can bowl 95 miles per hour as well. Yeah. What a man. Um, wonderful. Um, there is also a new Wisdom Cricket Monthly out this week. Oh, yeah. Joe, what's in it? Yes. Um, so it is the county issue. It is um, our preview for the new county season. Uh, kicked off by uh, David Hopps, who's written a brilliant essay about why county cricket is more important than ever in the wake of, um, obviously, a miserable 2020. Hopps makes the spine, Joe, doesn't he? Yeah. Discover it, nurture it, save it. County cricket has never been more vital. David Hopps, page 30. Which really which sums it up. So that, that kicks, it, kicks it off. We preview all 18 counties. Uh, we get all the wisdom writers to pick out what they're looking forward to to seeing this summer. Yaz, you're in there. What were you looking forward to seeing this summer? I, I basically said that the county championship is slightly more interesting when England aren't doing great. And after three defeats in a row, bitter pressure on some of the batsmen. It's, I, I always enjoy the kind of hype that builds up around players who have previously never been talked about with England. Um, players who might never play for England, but there's just that, you know, quite a few journalists start interviewing them and then every time they get 100, Twitter goes crazy. Um, that's always quite quite. All fun. players that journalists have never actually seen, but they see they string yeah, a few scores yeah. together and suddenly they're the answer to England's batting problems. Yeah, but I, I find that... I think like we've a, all been guilty of that one. Never. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, Phil, you, you you were looking forward to taking your dad to Chelmsford, weren't you? Was that your thing you're looking forward to? <laughs> <laughs> it's quite niche now I say it like that. But I, I, I did I did write that. I'm writing a book about Essex this, this summer um, and hoping to follow the club around uh, throughout the season, really, and shadow the club, in effect. And my, my dad took me to Essex in 1980-something when I was a, a kid, and uh, and I'd like to, to return the favour, really, because he hasn't been for a, a number of years now. He still loves his cricket. Um, and it would just be nice, I think, to sit there in, in, the, in that imperious tin pot ground at Chelmsford and... You know, and and just just watch watch the world drift by with my old man because that's what 
we did, and that's what began this ludicrous love affair for me. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to sitting, in effect, with an old man outdoors and watching some cricket. I think a few of us are looking forward to that. And not too long. Um, we've also picked out a bunch of ones to watch this summer, which I think we'll be doing our own for the podcast, right, Yaz? We've got that lined up. Yeah, we're going to have a big county championship season preview in a couple of weeks just before the start of the season. Um, plans for that are not 100% yet in place, but we may be doing something like that. Uh, and Phil goes kind of behind the scenes. I don't know if you can go behind the scenes at the Oval Invincibles when they're not really a thing yet, but you can explain what the piece is about. Yeah, I, I decided that I would look at the Oval Invincibles as uh, a case study for, for the 100 Um and I've become quite interested in how how this thing carves itself up, how it how it settles down as well, uh, and its relationship with the county club that hosts these hundred games. And the more I asked, and the more I got digging, the more interesting it became. Uh, I ended up speaking to Tom Moody, who is the head coach of the Invincibles. Um, I spoke to a couple of the players, Laurie Evans and Alex Blake. I also spoke to Georgia Adams, who will be heading up or be one of the key players for the female iteration of the Invincibles. And I spoke to a couple of people as well within the club, within the Surrey setup. Um, uh, and and it's interesting. There's an interesting tension at work there. No question, there's a tension at work that that the Oval will be desurified for the hundred. All the branding will be about the Invincibles, and Surrey as an entity will be buried under the rubble of all of that. Uh, Surrey are encouraged to get fully behind the tournament. Uh, there will be member uh, discounts for Surrey members, you know, for tickets and so on. And so there is, they're encouraged to believe that there is this synergy between county club and 100 franchise. We don't call them franchises, but for shorthand, they're franchises. And yet there is an undeniable tension there as well. 12 of Surrey's first team, and it may well be more by the, the time it comes around, but a minimum of 12 will, will not be available to play in the 50-over tournament for Surrey. So they will be wrenched out of their day jobs and embedded into the, into the 100 setup. One or two will also be playing test cricket, which is another layer of confusion. But it's just an interesting time that this thing, which has been, what, three years you know, in gestation, three years now since the idea came about, we still haven't seen a ball of it. We know all about the ups and downs and the and the rancor around this tournament. We know all about that. But to me, it's interesting that I don't think it will work effectively unless there is full buy-in from the counties as well, and especially from the big counties that will be hosting these these games. What, what does buy-in right, kind of look like? Is that doing their most to make sure that their members turn up? Or doing their best to try and sell tickets, or what? What is? Well, this is it. So much. It's everything's complex. So the ECB has taken centralised the marketing side of the thing and the ticket selling side of the thing. So Surrey were prepared and wanted to sell tickets, uh, and the ECB across the across the the hundred has centralised that process. So they've spent quite a lot of money creating a ticketing system uh, that then in effect, sidelines the counties. And so this is another tension. This is another imbalance there. That on the one hand, the ECB is saying, this is for all of us. This is for you. This is for us. This is for the counties as well. And on the other, they are unwittingly or otherwise sidelining the counties. And so, and so Surrey are not alone in, in, in looking at the, 
at the process and wondering where, where they come in, what, what influence they can have on a tournament that will A, be clearly um, eating into their own revenue models and their own revenue streams. Um, unquestionably, Surrey, Surrey have, and Surrey is just an example, right? Surrey have six home games in 12 days in the blast, in the T20 blast. Now, even a ground like, like the Oval, which sells out better than any other ground in the country, is going to be hard-pressed to flog full houses for six home games in 12 days. And why do they have that? They have that because of the 100. And we, as a, as a cricketing family, are also hoping that we get bums on seats for the 100 as well, because if we can unite around one thing, it's, we don't want it to be a disaster. If it's a disaster, it's a disaster for the game. If it's a success then there are still elements of disaster to it being successful, if you were to ask certain counties and fans of counties. But the, the big point is that it's a, it, there is a, a palpable tension, I think, between central government, in effect, and the counties that are being asked to, to throw everything at it, while at the same time feeling like their hands are rather tied behind their back. It's interesting because uh, I can guarantee you... This isn't going to get me into trouble at all. <laughs> I can guarantee there are a lot of listeners who, who will struggle to, to feel... Sorry for, for Surrey out of all counties and all this. When the tournament was first announced, the big concern was actually the counties who who, who aren't hosting any cricket during it. Yeah, I think Surrey are going to manage to struggle through okay. Um, but they are an interesting example because they carry such heft in the game and they have been effectively sort of it's, sidelined at their own venue. It's, it's, it's important as well. I spoke to somebody at Surrey and they said, look, uh, not that it's necessarily their concern, it's the ECB's concern, but this person said to me, the club, or rather the ground, will sell out pretty well for the 100 games. Central London, work crowds, etc. But he said, can we with any confidence say that about other grounds? Can we say that with any real confidence about Old Trafford, about Ed Edgbaston, about Trent Bridge, etc., etc.? Can we say that with any confidence about Cardiff in particular, where this is the local team of folks down in the cricketing hotbed of Somerset, and it's you got you got to kind of cross into another country in effect, over the bridge, and you know it's a two hour two hour trek to get to Cardiff for genuine cricket lovers down down in the southwest. So there are all kinds of questions that uh, I think are probably more more challenging to answer and justify the further afield you go. The Oval and Surrey and the entity of Oval Invincibles, therefore, is probably more more protected by this stuff than, than any of the other regions. But, there, but the, the stories that have, I've found out in the last few weeks doing this piece will echo around the, around the game. What, what could happen if they don't sell that many tickets? Like what, what does a, a poorly attended tournament look like in terms of repercussions for English cricket as a whole? I think certainly when it was due to be rolled out last year they were hoping for something like 50 to 60 percent attendance and that was considered to be a reasonably good result that would have been acceptable i'd have to find the specific number but it was around that 50 to 60 i think it might have been 60. uh i haven't heard anything since regarding that uh i think much of it and this was something that laurie evans in particular who's played a lot of franchise cricket around the world said he said so much of it boils down to perception and what it looks like. This is a TV game. This is a made-for-TV game, but it needs bums on seats to be convincing. It needs people in the ground for it to look successful. 
And then if the optics appear to be positive and vibrant, then that impression of success will then hopefully, if that's your position, embed itself more into the, into the product itself and then substantiate the product. Uh, if you are looking at games of cricket that carry echoes of those sort of you know, humdrum T20 games when you get 5,000 in and so on, uh, then that those questions about why this was created and with its unavoidable uh, bastardizing, if you like, of, of the T20 tournament, why was this created? Well, those questions become ever harder to answer if there aren't many people in the grounds. Um, but again, it's a made-for-TV show, this. And in the end, it will sink or swim by the numbers that it gets for the TV um, for the TV coverage. And of course, it was all priced in. The deal in the first place, the ECB deal with the TV companies was priced in. Uh, and so it's protected up to a point. But that TV deal runs out in 2024. That comes around very, very quickly. There is a lot of uh, scepticism, or rather pessimism is probably a better word, regarding this format's chances of longevity. But we shall see. Yeah, other bits in the mag? We still yeah. going? Yeah, still going. Um, Sorry, have I rather... Yeah, <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, we've got... Well, the Ian Watmore, ECB chairman Ian Watmore interview that I mentioned last week, that's in there. Um, we've also got an exclusive interview with Rashid Khan about kind of putting Afghanistan on the map, not only as a cricketing nation, but kind of boosting their, their world reputation. Uh, I had a lovely 90-minute chat with... New Zealand's John Wright about, Lovely, that. about his career as a player and then coaching India uh, and his time in between as a national sales manager in New Zealand when he got when he got a call from Graham Cowdery at Kent actually he recently passed away to say we've got a gig going if you fancy coming and coaching us and then well a couple of years later he was he was coaching Laxman Tendulkar Dravid Kumble for for India um, so he's yeah really really interesting story obviously he's very much part of IPL and Mumbai Indians and all that stuff now as well um, and all our columnists, Isabel Westbury, Elizabeth Ammon back on as a uh, county columnist, Andrew Miller, and of course Andy Zaltzman. So loads of reasons to go and pick it up. Wonderful. Oh, and Heather Knight as well. Her account of the 2017 World Cup final, which is towards the back of the magazine in the, the kind of nostalgia fest of the Golden Summers section. But I sat down with her last year and we, we put the piece together between us and she ended up taking a lot of control over it and... Uh, and once she, she let the handbrake off, it turned into a really quite a beautiful piece, I think. And it's, it's obviously a great, a great document of an amazing moment. Well, you can head to wisdom.com forward slash wisdom dash cricket dash monthly to get yourself either a print or a digital copy or a subscription. Um, thanks, Phil. Thanks, Joe. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. If you enjoyed the show, um, tell your friends. And we'll be back next week with our new regular guest, Mark Witcher. Podcast Network.